Get over here. This is Four Friends Fight About Film, a podcast about movies and things more important than movies, if we ever find any. All right, guys, before getting into today's episode, we wanted to remind everybody that we've got a listener suggestion episode coming up where you guys can pick the movies that we fight about. In order to get your suggestion on the show, all you have to do is leave us a review on iTunes and then email us at fightaboutfilm at gmail.com or message us on Facebook and let us know which movie you'd like us to talk about. Spots are filling up fast, so leave a review soon. Thanks. We're well into 2017, and we've been wanting to do a best of 2016 to kick off the second season, but we all needed a little more time to catch up on our films. We Uh, all needed a little more time to see more than two movies from 2016. (laughs) Actually, you two. By all, I mean Jordan. Me and Lance. To kick us off, say your name and your your least favorite movie of 2016. Jordan. I'm sorry to say this, but it's Ghostbusters. Why are you sorry to say that? Because I wanted it to be good. I just wanted these four funny women to be in a movie together and have it be funny, and it wasn't. This is Lance. I didn't see Ghostbusters, but I was going to put it on my list anyway because it's the worst trailer I saw this year. (laughs) It's a shocker. I liked Ghostbusters. Made me laugh. Nothing shocking. My least favorite movie that I saw this year it was The Lobster. Oh, everybody really want to see it. Everybody seemed to love The Lobster. It got nominated for Best Screenplay. I was very excited about it. It's like a quirky kind of love story, sort of right? sort of sci-fi, sort of love story. I was very excited about it, and it was just it wasn't my thing. I don't know. It just it seemed like it would be good, but I would, couldn't have been more bored during that movie. <laughs> so this is Kyle T. Gibson, Gibby, and my worst movie of this year is kind of a toss-up between Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children or uh, X-Men Apocalypse. You know, it's sad because we've talked about Tim Burton a lot on this podcast yeah. of the films of his that we love. He's just going just straight, none of them came out straight, in this decade. straight downhill. It was really quite terrible. All right. We asked you guys on Facebook what your favorite movies of 2016 were. We got a lot of the same films that we talk about today, but let's read a few of them here. Uh, Gibby, you want to take this first one? Midnight Special resonated with me more than I expected. I realize it wasn't incredibly popular, but I love the simplicity of Jeff Nichols' writing. Plus, who doesn't love a good sci-fi flick? Uh, that was Anna Phillips Turner. That was her voice yeah. that we played. There. That was her, that was actually her voice. <laughs> uh, I liked Midnight Special. I didn't super love it, but um, it was a great movie. Jeff Nichols is still knocking it out of the park. Very interesting writer director. Well, she asked a good question too. Who doesn't love a good sci-fi flick? And the answer is no one. No one doesn't. Not my wife probably doesn't. Yeah, there's some people. She doesn't that love. Yeah. Like, they don't love a good one. I, I guess she does. Love, I don't. She likes good ones. Yeah. So I take well, it the back. Sorry, love. They, the question was love. Not you mean like. there are people out there who limit themselves from certain genres? <laughs> I, I think so. I've, I've heard of such creatures. Oh, are you guys, you guys getting somewhere? <laughs> you know, I think you know oh, exactly yeah. where we're getting. Oh, right, because you guys yeah. watch oh, romantic yeah, comedies. Okay, yeah. your romantic comedies based upon I watch the four them. that we I watch. watch. Some. Yeah, uh, because we, you're supposed to watch them. Pretty sure I picked one last week. 
Uh, Lance, you want to do this next one? Yeah, this is Colby McHugh. I feel like I saw a ton of legitimately great movies last year, but the one that keeps coming back to me is Green Room. In a world where Colby McHugh saw Green World. (laughs) (laughs) We had a couple people say Green Room on uh, the Facebook page, so that seems to be a very popular one, and we might get to it later. Hmm. We we might. All right, this is uh, Jonah Berkowitz. We seem to. Im- Im- he, he's becoming a, he's becoming a fixture here. on the show. Yeah, yeah. Hunt for the Wilder People blew my mind. By turns, it made me uncontrollably laugh, and then brought me to tears. Wow, Scoop. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't write Wow, Scoop. <laughs> if you want your favorites right on the show, you can leave a comment at facebook.com/slash/fightaboutfilm. Uh, so your list. Uh, how difficult was it for this? You guys, you, you guys talked about you didn't watch a whole lot of yeah. movies. Is, is nigh on impossible an, an option? <laughs> I, I, I think it was a two things going on here one yeah i just didn't see a lot of films in 2016 because i was just concentrated on catching up on older films and but also i felt like 2016 was a really weak year for movies this is what lance says after every year that's not true mm. it's not true. i actually agree with him this year i feel like overall it was a weaker year both in terms of i mean there's always a few good great ones <laughs> a few good great ones. Uh, but i just felt like as a whole on both kind of spectacle films and also kind of more serious films that it, it was just kind of fell flat a little bit this was <laughs> was really really hard for me because we got to choosing our list for this and i had seen i think two movies from 2016 plus ghostbusters which i definitely wasn't going to pick yeah but the time by the time we're recording now though how many have you seen you you fit a bunch in i did i fit a lot in i don't i've probably seen eight now wow this was actually the least amount of movies i'd seen in any given year in about 15 well actually probably ever wow since i was a kid Uh, i only saw 27 films this year which is pretty low i usually average more than 40 and 50 well on the flip side of this coin it also i didn't and this is why i had a hard time answering the first question i didn't see a lot of terrible movies either it was just it was a lot of mediocre films this year Mm. it wasn't particularly great or bad yeah i'd agree with that i think this was a good year for animation there's a few excellent animation Years yeah. what, year what Pixar movie? No, came out? there were two good animated movies came out this year. Moana was very good. Uh, Finding Dory was very good. It was a good sequel. Uh, I thought Zootopia was really yeah. my four-year-old. A lot of people, Zootopia. yeah, most people agree. I with think you. Zootopia is good. You should do a show with Jordan's four-year-old. Yeah, that would, that'd you guys would have a lot more your speed. I'd pay her attention, unlike you. Um, you would pay I her saw, attention. That was weird. Oh, you would pay attention pay to her, attention unlike to her. I do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, kid, I'm trying to watch this movie for the podcast. Maybe you She'd could be, be exactly like Jordan, actually. Yeah, yeah maybe. Yeah, make, yeah, or you could be the father figure she doesn't have. <laughs> <laughs> Gibby, you're number three. All right, so this is Gibby. <laughs> Here's my best of 2016. Here we go. Start over. <laughs> Start over without laughing. So I saw quite a few good movies in 2016. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, but we're just talking about one. You just gotta yeah. just say one. The name. My number three film for 2016 was Hunt for the Wilder People. The, this, the, wick, the Wicker People? The Wilder People. people. Hunt for the Win- Wilder People. That's how they talk in a movie. New Zealand. In New Zealand. Zealand. <laughs> yep. So this is the fourth feature film by New Zealand comedy director Taiki Watiti. Close enough. Uh, Formerly direct, his his previous film was the new cult classic, What We Do in the Shadows. I don't understand that one. Next film is Thor Ragnarok. So this guy's taking quite a jump from What We Do in the Shadows all the way up to Thor. Yeah, I think in big uh, in big part due to uh, this film here. Yeah. Well, and I think they're so, they're making so many Marvel movies that they're literally running out of directors. <laughs> I think directors. I can't remember. Out. I think I directed a Marvel movie <laughs> last year. It was terrible. He's a very interesting. <laughs> Probably. For it. Uh, anyway, Wilder People follows trouble foster kid Ricky Baker, 
a boy who has been moved from home to home because nobody wants him. But he ends up out near the bushlands of New Zealand with an older married couple who are childless, Bella and her husband, Heck. His name's uh, Heck? It's short Heck. for Hector. Hector. Oh. Played uh, by Sam Neill. My very next line was Heck, playing by Sam Neill. Well, I beat you to it. <laughs> He's great. It's, it's one of his best roles, I think, since... You know, Event Horizon, Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Park, Event Horizon. Yeah. He's a he's a man of few words, but Ricky soon finds himself fitting in well with this weird little family who give him both freedom and a little bit of discipline. After Bella unexpectedly dies, and the, there's a pretty humorous funeral scene with a cameo by the director. The government's coming to take Ricky away, and he doesn't want that, so he runs away. It's like E.T. Almost exactly. Yeah. There's the racist pieces that lead him up to the bushlands of New Zealand. Uh, he runs away, but Heck goes to find him to bring him back and accidentally breaks his ankle while in the bushlands, and they have to spend the next four to five months hanging out there. All the while this, there's a massive manhunt for them going on. Does that qualify as hanging out? Like, I think hanging out, like, at a restaurant or an arcade. I don't, is that they kind of, I don't know, hanging out. They kind of just hide from life. They're pretty much they on both, the run, yeah. Yeah, they're on the run, and they're basically just hiding from... In the woods. Civilization. Mm-hmm. I really loved this movie. I mean, that's the plot. There's no point. The really plot is that on. you really loved it. Yeah, the plot that I loved. That it. doesn't surprise me. This this feels like a lot. Um, I mean, you're a big Wes Anderson fan, and mm-hmm. you kind of notice some of the same influences here. Yeah, there's a whole lot of Wes uh, Anderson. Yeah, in this. it, it kind of balances the funny, wacky, emotional, sentimental kind of adventure, like all mixed together in a way that I love. I thought this was an awesome movie, one of my top ten this year as well. I, I liked it a lot. I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. It was really zany. Zany The end end kind of loses it. It gets really zany at the end. Yeah. But that was apparently purposeful because that whole end car chase scene was like a recreation of a... uh, Of a commercial. Yeah, a commercial from the 80s by Toyota in New Zealand. I haven't seen Hunt for the Worcestershire sauce (laughs) or whatever it's called. Um, I've heard good things about it. I read some stuff online. It looked like an 8.0 on IMDb, which is pretty pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, everybody knows they've seen it. Lance is way more impressed by a number on IMDb than his friend's recommendations. Based on some of the recommendations you guys have given me, yeah, I I think. Um, Do they find the wilder people or what what happens? I think they they are the wilder people. Oh, why are they hunting for them? Because there are people hunting them. Oh, Oh, it's other people hunting. The the defects of New Zealand's hunting for Ricky to take him back in there. I think one of the things that really touched me about this film was first just how unwanted Ricky was, but how he finds his home in this weird couple. Mm-hmm. And he hates him at first. Yeah, he hates yeah. him at first. And there's this funny scene where he runs away and then Bella just kind of makes a joke of it and it comes to be yeah. a thing every night. Oh, you're running away tomorrow. Um, <laughs> that's <laughs> pretty good. Yeah, thanks. And uh, But but once they're on the run out in the, the bushlands, it I mean, it's kind of deep of how these two people, both Heck and Ricky, had never had a family before. Because Heck's all he had in his life was Bella. He can't read and mm-hmm. was kind of a loner was in prison for years and ricky's just been thrown from home to home and it was just really sweet how these two grew to become a family they yeah, loved each I, other I, I thought it had some really great characters in it sort of the problem i had was that bella was my favorite yeah, yeah. i really great. liked her and i and you kind of knew from the beginning that she was going to die early on there's this great scene with her in there that had to be improvised on the spot because it's ricky's birthday and they're all three still together amazing and uh they realized before they did it, they couldn't sing Happy Birthday because of the copyright yeah, I read laws. that too, that they filmed it like 10 times singing Happy Birthday <laughs> yeah. and someone's like, hey, we can't use that song. <laughs> so on the spot, the actress playing Bella came up with this song that she sings for Ricky there. Ricky Bacon, now you are 13 years old. You are a teenager and you're as good as gold. Ricky Baker, Ricky Baker, Happy Birthday. Once rejected, now accepted. 
by me and Hector, we're trifecta. And it's great. I'd like to see Hunt for the Winchesters. Yeah. Uh, sounds good. I also want to You might want to try Googling a different yeah. title yeah. than that. <laughs> That's good. All right, Lance, number three. How many of you guys have heard the name Charles Whitman? Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Okay, well, most people haven't. Don't know that on August 1st, 1966, Charles Whitman murdered his wife and mother, drove to the clock tower at the University of Texas in Austin, set up a sniper position at the top, and for 96 minutes engaged in a mass murder that killed 17 people and wounded 31. Tower, the documentary by Keith Maitland, tells the story of those on the ground, victims, bystanders, the heroes who emerged, and the four courageous men, one of whom was a manager at the university bookstore, the other three were, were police officers, who went to the top of the tower in an effort to take Whitman down. I appreciate this movie. This is a story I've, I've known for a long time. I've, I've been kind of familiar with it. Just always, as a true crime aficionado, I just always was fascinated by this story. But I've always been surprised how little people know about it, and so I was glad to see a film come out that exposed more people to it. There was a great 1967 movie made about this called The Deadly Tower, in which a young Kurt Russell played mm-hmm. Whitman. And I have no doubt it was huge news at the time, but it's sort of gotten lost in the morbid back pages of history. I've seen that movie. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's a really good yeah, movie. It is. They also adapted this into a ride at Disney. It's called Tower of Terror. Same thing. Yep. That's what and it's based Stephen on. Stephen King yep. wrote uh, novels about it called The Dark Tower, a whole series. <laughs> yeah, but wasn't there a movie sequel called The Towering Inferno? Yeah, that <laughs> was really good, too. Bots Great sequel. and bots. What about Tower um, Heist? <laughs> you guys done? You have more? I think it's called Lord of the Rings 2 Tower. <laughs> yeah. Can I remind you guys the event we're making jokes about here? Okay. Well, it's funny that what, you would say soon? that because there actually is a sequel. It's called Twin Towers. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Let's cut that also, one. Also, true story. Yeah. All right. It's too soon. Anyway, <laughs> mass public shootings are unfortunately something we've become very acquainted with in this country. And one of the strange results is that we always want to talk a lot about the perpetrator and we very rarely focus on the victims. And it's understandable because our minds tend to want to hone in on the question, how could anyone do that? And that leads to the first of two interesting creative decisions the filmmakers make here. First, it barely focuses on Whitman at all. And I think... I think they just quickly say his name at the end. Instead, we're told the tour. Are you crying? Shut up. It's okay. Instead, we're told the story through the testimonies of people who were there on the ground, some who were shot themselves. We hear the words of the people who lived through it. And it doesn't just focus on the heroes. We hear one woman talk about how she noticed some people were actively trying to help, whereas others, like her, were too paralyzed with fear to move. And she makes the comment, that's when I realized I was a coward. That's a powerful moment. One of the many interesting stories from that day is that of a retired news broadcaster who came back to the station to help that day because of the chaos. As one of the other newsmen is reading a list of the names of the victims, and on the air, we hear this, the retired newsman asked him to stop and go back. He had just heard the name of his grandson read out, and that's how he found out his grandson had been killed. The second creative decision they made, oddly enough, is to make most of this an animated film. And I'm not talking like Disney animation. It's that weird animation where it looks like someone overlaid the drawing on real actors. I have no idea what that's called. but It's, it's called rotoscoping. Yeah. Rotoscoping? Yeah, it's, it? it's a crazy looking thing, and it, it works here. I, I, don't, I don't know what made Maitland make that decision, but I think it may have had something to do with the fact it was such a surreal event that it called for a very surreal look that never lets you really get your footing psychologically. Mm-hmm. Um, you could have done reenactments, and I think it probably would have worked, but the filmmakers clearly didn't want to tell a run-of-the-mill documentary, and they certainly didn't. The animation pays off towards the end of the film when it starts to quickly cut between the animated young version of people being interviewed and the live older version of those same people saying the same words as they're being interviewed today. Mm. And in that moment, it snaps us back into the reality that this was an event that really happened still impacts the lives of people today. And those are such great moments where we see how effective editing can add to the quality of a film. I started watching 
watching it and I really didn't like the animation and I, I really thought that you were just like trolling us, oh, yeah. telling us to watch something and then you'd be like, yeah, you guys are dumb. And it took a, a good 15 minutes before the story grabbed me. Mm. And then I think it's about 45 minutes in where they start showing the actual people. Yeah. Because I my initial concern was that it was unreliable narrators, that it was going to be like, that they were putting stories in for people who had been killed. Yeah. And that would not have worked. Right. But this really, really works. And it is a gut punch when you see the actual people. Yeah. It's obvious that they haven't really talked about it very much. Yeah, I, that's a great point. I, I kind of got that vibe too at the end. I mean, one of them even says like, I'm here because I've never talked about this. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I thought this was, I guess, a good time to talk about it. Like 49 years later. And one woman's like, somebody asked me, why would I want to relive through all this? Why would I want to do this? Why would I want to talk about it? And she was like, I, she hadn't even seen any of these people like since then mm-hmm. and she needed that like sense of community with the people that had also experienced this right it's an incredible movie i had not give you actually uh, it's odd you haven't seen it because you actually told me about it and i had not i, I didn't know anything about this film there's a number a of movies ago. in this episode where gibby told us to <laughs> see watch that he had not watched that. see i i know what i i, I tend to understand what type of movie you guys would like it may not be movies i'd like yeah this this, like this, this movie one. was very popular on the festival circuit it's uh, it's in the top 10 on metacritic for for 2016 it's a very well received yeah. movie one last interesting footnote to this kind of morbid but whitman killed a lot of people that day but his last victim didn't die for another 35 years in 2001 a man who suffered uh, for years after being shot in the kidney and never fully recovered Gee. wow yeah. so you see the long lasting impact that this had that went well beyond that mm-hmm. that single 96 minute stretch there there's a character in this named something crumb who's this guy who worked across the street from the tower and ends up being on top of the tower and it's the guy i referenced earlier one of the four men who scaled the tower basically to he's an amazing character yeah and i i would love to see just a movie about him because he he's just this dorky guy that works in this shop there's this part where he's running toward the tower because he wants to call his wife and that's Mm. where he knows a phone is which is crazy but he's running there and he hides behind this column and he gets shot at Mm -hmm. And after he gets shot at, he, he like peers out from behind, looks up at the tower and gives the shooter what he calls the Italian digit. Yeah. <laughs> <And> <laughs> he's just, he's so, like, he's so pure yeah. in this way. Well, and then the shooter shoots at him again. Yeah. Like he sees him it's doing a, it through amazing. his scope and he shoots him again and tries to hit him and he misses. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. All right, Jordan, number three. Arrival. Directed by Denise Villeneuve, uh, starring Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner. I think Hudson told me to go see this movie. And since I do everything Hudson tells me to do, (laughs) I did it. And I loved it. And I even cried in it. So here's the story. A dozen egg-shaped UFOs show up around the world, and the U.S. government calls on a linguistics professor, Dr. Banks, played by Amy Adams, to become a communication go-between with the aliens. We also see bits and pieces of what is presumably Dr. Banks' recent past involving a teenage daughter who died of cancer. Teamed up with a theoretical physicist played by Jeremy Renner, which is somehow believable, but I'm not sure how, the doctors are locked in a slow-paced race against time to communicate with the heptapod aliens before any of the 12 nations with visitors attempt to destroy the interlopers. First of all, this movie is gorgeous, and while slow-moving, it is never, ever boring. The storytelling is complex and thoughtful and deeply moving. The stakes are high and the scope is wide, but there's no Independence Day or War of the Worlds here. With the exception of one unfortunate pickup line by Renner's character, I thought this movie was pretty damn near perfect. It raises fascinating questions about essentially the knowledge of life and death, the crucial nature of communication, and how alien we all are to each other and the things we also have in common. 
I loved it, and I'm anxious to see it again. And it's one of the smartest, most interesting, and challenging sci-fi movies I've ever seen. Mm. Hmm. That director, Denis Villeneuve, 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 uh, he kind of just burst on the scenes in 2013. And I mean, he's had a rise to prominence; has been super quick. Because with Prisoners and then Sicario last year, which I didn't see, but I didn't either, people but I went crazy to. over. Yeah, it's supposed to be great. And his next film is the Blade Runner sequel. And I, he puts yeah. together. We'll see. I don't. I don't know if it's him or the DPs he uses, but he puts together some phenomenal shots. And all of his movies are beautiful. Prisoners was, and this one sure looks like it. Did you see this? This one's kid? awful. This was gorgeous. The, this is. I'm the only one of us that hadn't seen it. But I, I really, really that's why really you were talking to. about other movies. So yeah, that's why I figured that's <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, I really want to. I just don't, yeah. If you ever want to see a movie that puts on a clinic in pacing, this is it. The, yeah. the gradual buildup and the patience the filmmakers display mm-hmm. is remarkable. And for me, that's really what made the film work. It's a tough thing to do as a director to make the audience feel like they're really in the shoes of the protagonist. And I was feeling their nervousness and excitement as they approached that alien ship for mm-hmm. the first time. And and just like them, I'm sitting there like going, I am dying to see what these things right. look like. Mm-hmm. Like if the movie had stopped right there, I would have gone crazy. <laughs> yeah. And not only that, when they do reveal the aliens, it's not some lame letdown either. Like I continue to be fascinated and engaged yeah, by them yeah, even yeah. as I'm looking at them. I was a little bit disappointed in what the aliens looked like. Really? I wasn't. The, the movie's so beautiful and creative. This is really my problem more than theirs, is I expected to see an alien like I've never seen before. Like, I, I was expecting us to, my mind to just be blown up by what these things looked like. I will say the way they communicated was different than anything I'd seen yeah, before. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, and what, what I loved about this movie too, and this characteristic in movies is always fascinating to me, is like a procedural where I see somebody up against an unsolvable problem and the steps they take to solve right. that problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you're watching them trying to communicate with these things, you're going, how are they going to do yeah, this? This, this is, is impossible. impossible. And then they not only do it, but they do it in a realistic way that yeah. almost makes you go, yeah, why, yeah, why didn't I think of that? Right, it, right. It's fat. Right. I loved that element of the movie. Because you're not a linguistics professor. Well, no, that's that's kind of what it is. It's the same thing with like police procedurals. Mm-hmm. I know nothing about how to solve a crime, mm-hmm. and and I think that's one reason that those like so many police procedurals on TV have done so well is because people love to watch the steps yeah, yeah. that people take to get from A to B when it seems like just an unbridgeable gap between those two points. So the the movie is essentially she's trying to communicate with these aliens, and they have no basis of language, so she has to learn what how they communicate, what words mean certain things, and how and they have to learn how we communicate and how certain words mean certain things. And so uh, I heard an interview where he's talking about the process of getting the movie made and he and somebody had asked you know why are they having to go through all these steps of like teaching all these things and so he what he does is he writes this like phrase on the wall and he says um something about you know why are you here or something he's like okay to understand why are you here you have to understand you know why and who is a person and who is you and he explains all these things to the to the producers and the producers like oh why don't you put that in the movie and so that became that scene where which is one of my favorite scenes in the movie where she explains how how they're going to solve this problem, which right. is, it was genius. Right. It was yeah. Great. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Great film. Now it it has a. I think it's debatable whether this movie has a twist or if it's. Oh, I think it does. Or if it's just like a way of storytelling. Right. Because it's not like, it's not this great reveal. It's not a gotcha. Yeah, it's not supposed to be that. It's not like the sixth sense. It's not that kind of twist. It's very organic and naturally flows from the story. And those are the best kind of twists. I I, I hear this movie is a tearjerker, quote unquote, prior. I cried. It's. I mean, it's. It's pretty heavy. Did you? It's, and it's. No. It, but in no. a really. Um, I don't have a heart. Yeah. No. Also, didn't cry because I'm not a. <laughs> so I played into uh, it. Nominated for best picture. 
2016. That's right. Congratulations, Arrival. Yeah, I was really happy to see that CSI Not nominated in a surprise was Amy Adams. That's right. She's really great in it. She is really great in it. I don't really necessarily like her, and I don't really like Jeremy Renner, but that they both were great in this. They're two, those are two actors that I feel like are, I don't have a problem with them, but I think they're really overrated mm-hmm. and in everything for some reason. Yeah. They neither, I never, neither loved or hated them in this movie. I thought, I thought, even if I hadn't liked them that much, the quality of the film and the story and the look and the tone mm-hmm. overpowered anything. Right. I think but that's how I felt too. Yeah. But then there's Forrest Whitaker. But they're, but they're fine. I mean, they're, they do a good job. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this was one of my, my favorite movies I saw this year. And one of the few movies I saw this year that I really took something from it. And I felt like it influenced my wife, life in a really positive way. Yeah. Hudson took the chair from the theater. <laughs> took something from it. Hey, <laughs> right, my number three favorite movie, 2016, 10 Cloverfield Lane. The movie opens on Michelle, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead, running away from her problems and apparently her fiancé. Distracted on the road, she gets in a bad car accident, and when she wakes up, she's locked in a small room. A man named Howard enters and explains that they are in an underground bunker and that everything outside has been destroyed by a virus and that it's unsafe to exit. What follows is a series of twists and turns. I don't want to give too much away, but I was just constantly on the edge of my seat, unable to guess what was going to happen next. I mean, it was kind of everything that I wanted from a low-budget sci-fi contained thriller. I really liked this movie. I just saw it this week. It was a lot of fun. The first 10 minutes of the movie, literally no sound. It's just score. There's no dialogue. In that first scene in the apartment, there's no sound at all. She Mm. picks up keys. She looks at the phone. Like a call comes in. Mm -hmm. There's just no sound. Even when she's driving, there's no sound until he, fiance, calls in. I think that's a very interesting way to start a movie. And it's a good homage to Hitchcock. And the, the score... And even the way it's filmed is very Hitchcockian. Very cool. Mm. The fiance's voice was an uncredited Bradley Cooper. Yep. So also. is it a sequel? No. I would universe. not call it a sequel. Yeah, it's a shared universe. Maybe I need to watch this movie again. I, I didn't like it. I'm still kind of trying to process why. First of all, I need somebody to just hose it down and get some of the J.J. Abrams off of it a little bit. So you could see, actually see get, what's happening on screen. Yeah. I didn't get it. it just felt so abrams I didn't get that much Abrams from it. He didn't direct it. Um, oh, okay. I it's think, uh, Dan Trachtenberg. I think, I think my problem... Awesome I think, job. I think my problem with it has something to do with the fact that I, I was more curious and interested in what was going on outside of the shed than inside of it. And I, I'm not, I'm not going <laughs> to... That's a great way to feel about a movie. I was just really interested in all the things that were not were, on screen. Yeah, that weren't in the movie. Well, it's all tied to what's going on outside of the shed. And so I, I'm not going to give away the ending. But when, when we finally get to the end, I'm thinking, well, why didn't we see a movie about that instead of... I think no, we will. Oh, that's... Ta- what? We, we've already seen a movie yeah, about that. Every, every about single that. alien invasion movie you've ever seen is right, about well, that. We need to go ahead and put spoiler alert back here at the I guess, I, guess, I guess what I'm saying is it made everything that had just happened inside the shed seem very small and no, unimportant. no. 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 Oh, I think that's very important. Yeah. Yeah. How does it make it more important? There, it's just a, bu- a couple of people stuck inside a shed having paranoia. Well, so the whole much I mean, more the first, that happens inside the first of there. Seventy-five minutes of the movie are well. First, you wonder is John Goodman crazy or is he not crazy? John the Goodman's film, fantastic. Yeah, the film does a movie. great job, and Goodman in particular he's making fine. him. No, he's so good. And I actually like the end of the movie. Hudson did not. I like that they went for it. I mean, it's like, because I, I was afraid it would end and they'd go out there and they'd see just a ship and that's well, it. But see, I, mean, I can it goes I, the way for See, it. now I can understand why you didn't like it because it, it, to me, the end just felt so disjointed from everything right. else. Right. It felt, yeah, like everything I loved about the first, what, 90 minutes or whatever, I just felt like kind of undid a little bit. I liked the final bit of the character. Is, the character yeah. arc was great. I could, I, I think I could have gotten more on board with it with a different ending. 
Huh. I mean, I, I think we both didn't like the ending, but it for had a reasons. way bigger impact to me on the rest of the film than it did for you. I think it's perfect the way they did it. I mean, I had issues with the ending, but I'm really glad that they went the way they did. But I don't know if you guys remember when this film was first marketed, but it was yeah, so name. secretive that, yeah, the title or trailer or anything wasn't released until January, and then it came out in March. Like it was that. Isn't that kind of what happened with Cloverfield? Yeah, yeah Cloverfield dropped the same thing. Like yeah. Weird. Yep. Why are they making these movies like incognito? Well, J.J. Abrams has a huge phobia of spoilers. I mean, that's why he well, he's like going to be mad at you. No, very, a, yeah. A, <laughs> in terms of before the movie, he just doesn't a, want people to learn about his movies before they come out. I have a phobia of J.J. Abrams. So. <laughs> yep, me you too. like J.J. Abrams movies. No, I, I like J.J. Abrams. I, I like the first 90% of his movies. The last 10% sucks. Gibby, number two. My number two film, 2016. Is what's, what's the funny part of that? Because you guys always make fun of me when I... I thought you were laughing because you said number two. Like yeah, my number two. I would agree that this is a number two. All right, so my number two film is Sing Street. But before I go into the explanation of this movie... He's already defensive. He's already defensive. I love this movie. Jordan, just let me tell you this before you butt into the middle of my synopsis <laughs> with sounds of disgust and jokes about, oh, Sing Street should be called Barf Street. All right? <laughs> I was thinking more like... You know, I'm sorry I picked a movie that is generally positive and dealt with how pop music can help you cope through hard times yeah, and give some people Jordan, happiness. Jerk. My bad. I guess I should <laughs> I have I guess I guess I should have picked the version of Sing Street where the kid uses his guitar to start murdering people at a concert. And they don't do that. So I just wanted to get that out of the way. Are you going into stand up comedian? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love when you do this. He's, he really hasn't talked about the movie. He's only attacked me. <laughs> <laughs> Sing Street, everybody go on Sing Street. That's what I'm imagining. Let's skip down the Sing Street. (laughs) (laughs) Songs aren't like that. Okay, so Sing Street is director John Carney's third film after what I thought was The Incredible Once and then the okay, begin again. Sing Street takes place in Dublin, Ireland in the (laughs) 1980s. The mid-80s focuses on a young Connor, the shy kid whose home life's in upheaval. His parents constantly fight, his brother's a stoner, and now he's having to go to a new boys' school because his parents cannot afford his old school. Girl school. Connor doesn't immediately fit in at the new school, and he's bullied on his first day. Of course day he doesn't. By a, by a gay skinhead. Yeah. <laughs> is the school located on Sing Street? Yes. Why is yeah, it called Sing Street? It's called Sing that's Street. That's the name of the school. Sing What's the name of the school? Sing Street? Are you kidding S-Y-N-G-E. me? S-Y-N-G-E. Okay. Yep. <laughs> so he doesn't fit in. Syringe Street? <laughs> Syringe Street. So on his first day of school, he sees and meets the enchanting Rafina. She's a girl who's outside their school smoking. He's immediately smitten and asks her just offhand if she wants to be in a music video for his new band, for his band, because she says she's a model. Does he go, hey, do you want to go down to the no, Sing it's, Street? No, it's got dialogue on it. No, oh, okay. instead it's the really shy kid who doesn't fit in and has had a really hard day who walks across the street to the hot older girl who walks, is smoking. Well, walks says, across Sing Street? Hey, do you want to be in my music video? So she agrees, <laughs> but the only problem is that Connor doesn't even have a band yet or any what? friends. What? What's so he going to do? He starts a band to impress a girl, and the movie goes from there. I mean, this movie's not huge on plot. It's just kind of a... <laughs> actually, none, none of my picks are actually uh, that plot-driven. There's a plus. But this is just so likable, so much fun, and it's got really catchy songs. I am O. The music 
gets better as he gets better with his band. And so the movie doesn't turn into him trying to impress the girl. The movie turns into him falling in love with music and of what it, it does, does for you. Uh, and the girl. It's, it's it, really... I thought he started the band for the girl. It's a lot about the girl. Well, it grows. I, mean, I the just movie feel kind of, like... Yeah. This, you this would seem, love this No, movie. this seems tailor-made for me, like something I would love, but I just feel like I'm so... I feel like this is a real growing up moment for me because I'm so over coming-of-age films. And so does that mean I'm actually becoming an you, adult you because I'm no longer interested you in coming of age? Me and Jordan like 20 years ago. That's what you just became. Well, obviously I'm not because all three of my deal with that. Like literally all three of my movies have that. A big part of the plot is Connor's fight against the school and the headmaster of the school. Right. And so 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 Connor, as he, listens to these, as he listens to these songs, he begins to, he molds himself and his band into it. So at one point he listened to a cure and he shows up at school the next day with like a Robert Smith type haircut. I think there's a lot of kind of fantastical elements to this. And I think the director did that on purpose. Sure, I read an interview where he He's like, when it talks about the end, he's like, that wasn't reality. This was just reality. That wasn't reality with owls. <laughs> so the conflict in this movie is like, old man Wilkerson's trying to kill our youthful passion. Is this like Footloose? Like footloose. Is it, it, in a way, it is because there's in the, the pivotal uh, climax where the band's playing their first show yeah. and everybody's into it because it's their first show does, and everybody's does, into it. Does, he, well, does, the head, does the headmaster learn to rediscover his youth? No, <laughs> not at all. But they're going to sing this, the last song. Don't there's worry. Like the one teacher that starts telling. Tapping yeah. your foot in the background. Yeah. Thank God they didn't do that. He remembers his day when he started a band to impress a girl. He's he's like, all right, we're gonna play this last song. Don't worry, it's a fast one. And they he they start playing it. It's this song about the headmaster. Connor throws out all these masks of the headmaster, and so everybody's in the crowd dancing with these masks on. And the girl comes in, and everything's perfect and great. But it's just this fight that I just didn't. That seems silly to me. See, to me, that didn't bother me at all because I didn't think the film was about his fight against the headmaster or his fight against the school. I thought the film was about his growth as a person and how music helped him cope with life. And he had a pretty hard life. So that's what spoke to me. Secondly, Sing Street, everybody's on the Sing Street. Going down to the Sing Street. Secondly, S-I-N-G Street. Let me, let me, let me, let me end with this. So Sing Street's Rotten Tomato score is 96% and its audience score, well, they didn't like it as much. It's all the way down to 93%. So you, you know what movie these scores are better than? What? Every single effing one of your movies. <laughs> so hey, that all hey. that means is that the general public is dumb and gullible and not just the general public critics you're not this film was nominated for best film at the irish film and television awards Uh -uh. it did not win Let, let me finish with this. And then let me finish. Yes, yeah, you're going to let me finish. And, and here's why. Here's why. I didn't actually totally hate this movie until the end. Instead of using one of the kids' songs, instead of using one of the songs from the era, they use an Adam Levine solo song, which if you don't know who Adam Levine is, he's the singer from Maroon 5. Yeah, that, was, that was a bit out of it. Yeah, it's the last five minutes of the movie. <laughs> it's all that. Jack Leach auditioned for a role in this film. I didn't see this. That's the first fact I saw on IMDb. I just wanted to throw it out there so you guys would who's, think I saw who's something. Jack I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> People like this movie. Hudson, you would love it. Sing Street. All right. Lance, number two. Neon Demon. Neon Demon. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a musical. Yeah, it doesn't apply. <laughs> Nicholas Winding Refn. Did I say that right? Is it winding or winding? I think it's winding. Nicholas Winding Refn, an aspiring model named Jesse, moves to L.A. and encounters a group of beauty-obsessed women who will take any means necessary to devour Jesse's youth and vitality. This is one of the only films I've ever seen I would describe as hypnotic. When I watch movies, I'm usually easily distracted, and my brain doesn't shut off and just get absorbed unless the film is very, very engaging. And I felt like when this movie started, I entered a dream that I didn't wake up from until the credits were rolling two hours later. This movie had a lot of anticipation as Refn, or is it Winding Refn? What am I supposed to call him? 
This is Reffin. Just call him Nicholas. Nick. Nicholas. Do you, do you think he's like total prick who's always like when people are like, hey, Nick, and he's like, pardon me, it's Nicholas Winding. Uh, based upon well, his movies, yes. Right. Yeah, the probably. funny thing is that his name is all over his movies. Did you, yeah, did you notice that? Yeah. yeah. I remember that from Drive. Anyway, he was the director of the hit 2011 film Drive, which was wonderful and has generated movie. a lot of excitement among um, douchebags who love movies. <laughs> the film has long stretches of no or minimal dialogue where we're just watching and absorbing the visuals and the music, and that's what gives it its dreamlike aura. There isn't a ton of plot either, and I'm making this movie sound boring, but it's really not. It's engaging over its entire 118-minute runtime as we watch Jesse get sucked into this world and start to see the seedy underbelly of it, which ends up taking a more psychotic turn than we expect. I've heard this movie called an immediate cult film, and I think that's a really accurate description. It's not a film everybody will love, and as odd as this may sound, I'm not sure I really loved it as much as I just admired it. It's so well-crafted and put me in this mental state the movies just rarely do to me. Mm. It was oddly relaxing and transcendental, and it's a film that just asks you to turn your mind off and experience it rather than watch it. If you're willing and able to do that, it's quite a ride. I had the I had the same exact experience. It's fun. I mean, it's it is fun, and it's spellbinding. It is. Yeah, it's a it's weird too. It's a film. I don't know if I'll ever watch it again because it was such a great experience first time around that I just don't mm-hmm. see it being as good the second time. This film opened at Cannes. And um, Khan. Wrath of Khan. It received both booze and a standing ovation, which has kind of become a ref and thing. Everybody stood up and booed. booed. (laughs) (laughs) Clapped and booed at the same time. He also said, I decided that I'd made enough films about violent men, and I wanted to do a film with only women in the film. Violent women. Which is not the case. That's interesting. That's what makes it work, because there's a... I had never thought about it until you just said that. It is a film about women committing violence against other Mm -hmm. women, and it's... Mm. And you, you... you're right. You don't see that. Violence is almost inextricably linked with men in films. Yeah. And I think that might be one thing that set this apart so much. And I, I, that's that's a very mm-hmm. interesting perspective. Huh. I thought the casting was so good, mm-hmm. which is interesting because, uh, what's her name? Carrie, Carrie Mulligan. Carrie Mulligan was originally supposed to play Jesse. And it, I think it would have been a very been different, different movie if that had been the case. But I loved, what's her name in it? Ellie Fanning. Yes, Ellie Fanning. Fanning. Elle Fanning. Elle Fanning. Keanu Reeves in it was a Keanu, little bit weird. Keanu Reeves is yeah, it's a strange role for him. It's very minimal. He's not in it a lot. And it, yeah, probably a good thing. It was a little yeah, weird. Yeah. He's but the funny thing is though, he's like he's There's not a neon the neon demon. Yeah, Whoa, it's a neon demon. <laughs> I'm looking for the neon demon. Uh, no, he's he's he doesn't. I mean, this is will be insulting, but he's he's a distraction in every movie he's in, and he's not in this. It's the first role I've seen him in. That it it kind of fit. Yeah. Like he was like good in it. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it was still weird, but it, but it, yeah, yeah, it worked. I thought that the movie ended up a little bit heavy-handed mm-hmm. as far as being on the nose about fashion. If yeah. that's if that's what he meant, I'm not sure that it even is what he meant, but yeah. it, mm-hmm. it kind of felt that way. But it, it's what an interesting movie. I yeah. was looking at all the things he's directed, and you know, Reffin's kind of mostly known for these ultra-violent films, but he's also directed two episodes of Agatha Christie's Miss Marple, which is like the least Reffin thing you've ever yeah. seen. Huh. It's so Reffin. <laughs> <laughs> That's so riffing. Jordan, number two. So I was kind of at a, at a loss in making this list because, like I said earlier, I, I don't watch a whole lot of movies when they're released. Did I say that earlier? And I didn't really have much of a pool to pull from. So Gibby, at one point, suggested that I watch this movie. It's called The Invitation. As it had gotten some good reactions and seemed possibly up my alley, Gibby, of course, hadn't seen it, but that's beside the point. I watched it. 
and it hit me like the world's supply of bricks raining down on my head. <laughs> directed by Karen Kusama, who also directed a handful of movies I have never seen, The Invitation starts with a simple idea and runs with it. Will and his girlfriend Kira are invited to a dinner party at his ex-wife's house. She's been out of the country for a couple years and invited the old crew back together. Will finds himself increasingly uncomfortable and paranoid, thinking that perhaps their invitation wasn't as friendly as it seemed. In fact, he thinks their intentions may be downright sinister. I feel like this is one of those movies that you see listed on Netflix and you think that, oh, that, that sounds interesting, but I've never heard of it and it's probably terrible, so I'm well, not going to yeah, waste my it, time it, on it. It's a movie you feel like you have pegged already. Like, oh, it's one of those movies right. that is always really bland and mediocre and forgettable. Right. So, Well, um, it looked to me like we go to a lot of film festivals and it looked like a movie you'd see at a film festival and yeah. then never hear from again. Right, right, right. Well, those feelings were wrong. <laughs> uh, this is a superbly made film about paranoia and suspicion and trust. It's another slow burn, but that's what makes its tension and suspense work so well. The tricky part here is that it's best to know nothing about the movie when you watch it, to just go along for the ride. So I don't want to spoil a thing. Here's what I will say. Literally, like literally, literally, <laughs> my mouth hung open for the last 20 minutes or so of this movie, and the movie stuck with me for days after. Wow. He was also eating in the last 20 minutes. <laughs> I was not eating. I couldn't drink anything. Right he got lockjaw. Wow. I, I didn't get what, no, none of that. That's I, the best review you could give. It. Oh yeah. yeah, this I'm this movie out. hit exactly what I really like. Hit, hit your spot. Yeah, what what an interesting movie this was. I watched this last night. I I really never heard anything about it. You've heard the term gaslighting. Mm -hmm. Anybody familiar with that? Mm -hmm. If you're listening and you're not familiar with it, this is where you manipulate someone into questioning their own sanity. Um, the term comes from a great film called Gaslight, a 1944 film with Ingrid Bergman. But since you didn't pick that 1944 film for our best of 2016 <laughs> list, I won't go into it. Um, but this film plays with that concept really effectively. The the third act does start to delve into a little bit of cliche mm -hmm. um, but they completely make up for it in the very final shot yeah. oh, which yeah. and I literally mean the final shot and image that you're left with which was fantastic and ties the film uh -huh. together beautifully although, um, although right after that they tried really hard to ruin it with the end credits song of course you would say that but why, don't you just, why don't you just press like yeah, just you need to just start hitting you need to hit mute you, going you should have like a iPod or a player right next to you <laughs> and then as soon as the trailer come just press whatever music you like no, we no don't want because it's part of the movie nah yes it is yeah, the filmmakers intentionally put a song there yes exactly I was very surprised to see this had a 6.7 on IMDb and every every year there are a couple of films that go really underappreciated and take several years to really emerge mm -hmm. and I'll be very curious to see if this ends up being mm -hmm. one of those films yeah I think it's going to be a matter of people need to see it yeah from what I've read about this and heard about this A that lead dude looks just like you in the movie oh it was really stills. distracting <laughs> because I kept <laughs> feeling like I was watching me in a movie yeah. like so. jordan jordan started it and then he sends a text 10 minutes later give me you pick this because the dude looks like me <laughs> it looks just like you he does not look like me when he doesn't have long hair and a beard <laughs> yeah 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 it's, it's a really beard, it's a really well cast film too <laughs> like every character they, they it hits the perfect note and one thing that's funny to me about this film too is the first 30 minutes feels like a really bad like gap ad yeah. or something like you you kind of hate a lot of these yeah, people because yeah, yeah. they're these like all these like upper class wealthy just douchey just, people uh, suburban yeah, LA just like yeah yeah, they're just really gross and yeah. grimy, and I don't know. But man, yeah, it takes you to some interesting dark places, and it's a it's a it's a really fun ride. And this is the type of movie I think that can propel a director to 
you know, bigger and better things, even if it takes a year or two to yeah. appreciate it. Because there's, I mean, there's a lot of talk about this movie, even if it's only got a 6.8 on IMDb. I've I've heard about it for a while. Well, these two writers that wrote this movie, Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi. Oh, they, those guys. Yeah, they brought us Clash of the Titans, R.I.P.D., and Ride Along, and Ride Along 2. Which yeah. was shot on my, part of it was shot on my street. Huh. Nice. Oh, both um, the Ride Alongs. And so this was their attempt to do something like, look, let's do something small, yeah. let's do something serious, let's, you know, we've, show our skills. And I, we've, I think we've had the ability to meet those guys but I don't think we actually yeah, they spoke at a conference we went to mm-hmm. but I think that was the director's thing too because the director was a studio director for a little while she did was she, her first movie Aeon Girl Flux. Fight was, but then she did Eon Flux and yeah. uh, something else big that totally bombed and so I think this was her getting away from the studio yeah from, yeah. from that and I'll just doing something out. small and I'm glad it, you liked it it was so well done see sometimes I good I recommendation like. Gib alright my number two is The Nice Guys directed by Shane Black starring Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe a mystery crime thriller comedy set in 1970s Los Angeles. It's a wonderful mix of genres that I love. Holland March is a single father and the worst PI in the world, so called by his daughter. He teams up with Heavy Jackson Healy. Heavy, is that what you call those guys that, you know, like, you know, go after break someone's knee? Yeah. They, They team up in order to solve a case of a missing young woman discovering a larger conspiracy along the way, as many of these uh, PI stories do. So it's fun PI stuff. Quick, witty, Shane blackish dialogue, memorable characters, slapsticky violence, great names like Holland March, Jackson Healy, and Sid Shattuck. It's the most fun I had at the movies all year and one of the funniest movies I've seen in a long time, but it also has an emotional center with the relationship between Holland and his daughter, Holly, uh, dealing with the death of her mom. And I love his daughter in this is she's never, she's like 12 years old. She's never a damsel in distress. She's funny and smart. And I felt like she's essentially like Penny from Inspector Gadget, you know, who's (laughs) actually solving the crime while these other guys have no idea what they're doing. The plot and central mystery is a little confusing, and I'm not totally sure it works, but it's the tone and the characters that make this movie so addicting. And a lot of the gags play on movie tropes, like he breaks a window with his hand to to break in, and it starts bleeding profusely, or throwing a gun and it completely misses and flies out the window, or throwing hot coffee in someone's face only to realize that it's cold coffee. To me, this is a great example of how much bad advertising can hurt you as a film. would Would it be fair to say the trailer to this did not look good? Correct. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And that's honestly a big part of the reason I haven't seen it. Having heard you speak highly of it, and I've heard a lot of good things about it, I do kind of. I think see you'd it now. really like it. But yeah. good lord, L.A., please, Hollywood, please learn how to market. Yeah, movie. stop with these terrible ads. This movie looked yeah. horrendous. Yeah. Apparently, there's an uncredited cameo by Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, that's right. Oh, I didn't know that. He's yeah. Shane Black's buddy. He's the director. This movie. Yeah, Shane Black's the director. He is. Uh, he wrote Lethal Weapon. Kind of very the, famous screenwriter yeah. in the oh. late '80s, early '90s with Lethal Weapon made tons of money, millions yeah, of dollars off his screenplays. Monster Squad. Apparently, Robert Downey Jr. plays just a dead body. In right. Ah, that's unfortunate. It was a movie I always wanted to see, just never got around to it. Gibby, number one. Sing Street Two. <laughs> <laughs> Sing Lane. My number one movie is you guys would really like Sing Street. If you <laughs> Jordan did watch it. I yeah. did well, watch it. I didn't mean you guys. I meant you guy and you guy, not that guy. So my number one movie is A Monster Calls. It's the third movie by J.A. Bayona, the Spanish director behind the spooky Spanish J. A. horror film. J.A. Abrams. <laughs> J.A. J.A.B. Jab. The Spanish director behind Spanish horror film The Orphanage, and the quite good tsunami movie The Impossible. His next film is the Jurassic World sequel. Uh, A Monster Call 
follows 12-year-old Connor, a different Connor from Sing Street, uh, played <laughs> wonderfully by the newcomer Louis McDougall. Connor lives in a small home in London or, or somewhere where people have cool accents. Uh, he lives with a single mom who's living with a terminal illness that's not getting any better. Connor's a quiet, nice kid, but he doesn't have a lot of friends and his only outlets are drawing. He's been bullied at school, but he's also pitied at school by teachers and other classmates. His dad's away with his new family in America, and the only other family in the UK is his grandmother, played by a, an icy grandmother, played by Sigourney Weaver. But to help him deal with all this, Connor conjures a tree monster. It's voiced by Liam Neeson, who magically appears at 12.07 a.m. one night to tell him a story, and that it's going to be followed up by two more stories at different occasions, and eventually Connor has to tell him a fourth story. So as the as Connor's mom gets worse and life just progresses, he hears these stories from the tree monster that applies to his life. I mean, the movie's just following Connor's growth. And it to me... Here's a simple plot line of it. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? No. Enough. Enough. <laughs> I'm just kidding. A uh, boy seeks the help of a no. tree monster to cope with his single mother's terminal just, illness. Why don't you just lead with that? <laughs> lead with that. <laughs> I so, it. I got to be honest with you. This is starting to sound like a live action Pixar movie to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's really what this is. It really is kind of like well, a live like action, a live action right. CGI well, yeah. Pixar movie. This sounds like it would make a better book than a movie. I know it was, it was a, book. a book. The the stories that the tree monster tells them are not simple stories. They've got a lot of nuance in them, and the boy actually gets mad at one of them because there's no real good guy or bad guy in a story. What they thought was a good guy ended up being a bad guy, and the tree monster says, there's not always a good guy, There's nor always a bad guy. Most people are somewhere in between. Yeah, I mean, I think that's actually a pretty. So, deep but statement. like, is there like a like? Is he trying to do something? Like, is there a plot? So, no. I mean, there's not that much <laughs> of a plot. <laughs> but it's like the story's set in motion because he wants to hear each of these stories from the tree monster, and then he doesn't understand what his fourth story is. And there's a super emotional climax where he, he figures out what own. it is. Yeah. And I mean, if we were doing this tearjerker episode from last year all over again, you do this one. This would be my number one pick, like easily. Hmm. Yeah. You texted us at, right after you saw this, yeah. and you said, "I cried in this movie like I've never cried in a movie right. before." No right. way. Yeah. That's no, I texted you. Like you cried the <laughs> hardest? It. Yes. I, I, I can't ever remember being affected by a movie like I was with this one. Oh I mean, gosh. I know I, I kind of choke up at a lot of movies. No, but I'm not I'm not trying to make fun of you when I say this. Like, you, you cry at so many <laughs> movies. Like, the fact right. that this is the one that made you cry the hardest, that's the, saying something. The that's last gross. 35 minutes of this movie, I mean, I was like bawling. Wow, 35 Like, like almost heaving. How were your knees when it, <laughs> when it ended? <laughs> 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 Um, usually, God, I mean, even, poor wife. even when I, does yeah. she go to no, all these cried, movies with she you? She cried at the suit. She doesn't ever cry at movies. Did she, did she go to all these movies with you? Is it just a humiliating experience for her? Well, every she time? is. Cause we'll sit there and if something gets kind of emotional on the screen, oh, there may be a way to protect she, herself. Like, from, she gets from up sadness. and moves one seat she'll, over. Yeah, she'll look over at me and she'll like touch my face. Oh my God. I'm trying and she mocks me. You know, usually when I leave a theater after a, an emotional film, I'm okay. It doesn't affect me. But this one. That's I was in the bathroom and I almost started crying at the urinal. <laughs> and then I was washing my hands and I almost started crying there. Then I meet Crystal and walking out and I almost start crying there. And I have never had that effect before. Well, that's that's surprising that. to me that you, that's never yeah. had that effect on you. It doesn't. I mean, usually <laughs> when I walk out of the theater, um, I'm fine. Um, yeah, I'll watch this one, Gabby. I'll catch the, I'll catch this one when it comes on um, on demand, which sounds like it's going to do real soon. Uh, admittedly, it hit me m- harder than than most, maybe because I was about the same age as the main kid in this movie uh, when my mom died and went through many of the feelings that he went through in well, in the movie. Okay, that's a cheap I shot, didn't, man. I didn't know you were going <laughs> to. <do that. laughs> I didn't. I didn't. I had no idea how to express him as a as a kid. Um, but, well, it was but had you, I you seen want... him, this movie, I think my dad probably could have saved some money on therapy. 
Because this is literally, I mean, it was like a two-hour therapy session. Wow. Well, if he, I mean, if he'd had tree monsters around, it would yeah. have been a different story. Yeah. And I don't, I don't mean branched to, out. Yeah. I don't mean to make this seem like a slog or it's really dark, because it's not. There's a lot of levity, and it's fun. And it's a, it's a beautiful movie. The director absolutely so, knows so what to do with the camera. In the end, the, the tree leaves? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> to me, it hit me right in the heart. So I think it was my favorite movie of the year. Had we done this two weeks ago, I hadn't seen it. Wow. My heart something else. My heart hadn't died a few years ago. I probably would enjoy it. Hmm. All right, Lance, what makes your number one post heart death? (laughs) 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 What's this true crime? (laughs) Hmm. O.J. Simpson, Made in America, Ezra Edelman's documentary. One of the few films I've ever seen that achieved a 9.0 on IMDb. I think that I think that's how long it was. Not <laughs> <laughs> it's a lengthy film. I'll get into that in just a second. Um, See, OJ I mistakenly S- thought this was the history of orange juice in America. Because <laughs> it is Made in America. You thought it was just an international ex- oh, no, export. They, you were wrong. They cover that, too, in the nine hours. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> this film recounts the O.J. Simpson trial, the events leading up to it and the impact it had and continues to have on our culture. As these fine gentlemen have said, this is an eight-hour documentary that has so many layers and angles and perspectives that I think we could probably do an entire show on it. The O.J. Simpson story continues to haunt our culture over 20 years later, and I think it is stuck around because it's as much about us as it is about O.J. Simpson. You know, we look at a story like 9-11 and it's cut and dry. We all believe the people who perpetrated it were evil, case closed. With O.J. Simpson, we all approach it with our own unique baggage. How else do you explain those videos after the verdict was read where one side of the street is filled with black Americans who were celebrating, and the other side is grief-stricken white Americans? And you didn't have to be present at the verdict to feel that. I was in Atlanta, 3,000 miles away. Is that how far Atlanta is from LA? I don't know. Something like that. we got to get this accurate. Multiple- I mean, you, you can go a route that would take that long. Probably. Sure. <laughs> Multiple <laughs> thousands of miles away. I actually stayed home from school that day to watch it, and you could feel the racial tension from here. If I'm going to review and discuss a film where personal perspective matters, it's only fair that I share mine. I think O.J. Simpson is indisputably guilty. I think he's a monster. I think it's a tragedy he was found innocent. But on the other side of that coin, I also have to say that I'm a white American and be honest in admitting that the people who disagree with me aren't or weren't doing so because they're stupid or evil, but because they're seeing a side of American society that I never had to deal with, which is factoring into their perspective. What this film does that is completely unique from any other material I've seen on this topic, and there have been plenty, is that it starts in the 1950s and tells us the story of racial tension in L.A. that led up to this. The story of O.J. Simpson didn't really begin the night Nicole Simpson and Ron Goldman were killed. L.A. was a powder keg just waiting for the fuse to be lit, culminating in the Rodney King beating shortly before these murders. And what this film did for me was to help me understand why so many black Americans reacted differently than I did. And I want to be clear, there's a big difference between understanding and sympathizing. This film isn't asking for sympathy, but it is asking us to give people the courtesy of looking at things through their eyes. Two things in this film stand out to me. The first is an interview with juror number nine, who was asked directly whether she believed the jury, which I believe 10 of the 12 were black, viewed the verdict as payback for Rodney King. She says 90% of them did. Mm. When asked directly if she viewed it that way without hesitation, she says yes. When then asked if she thinks that's fair, she just shrugs her shoulders. And at that point, my jaw hit the floor. Yeah, that was... Awesome. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, the second plays into the biggest tragedy of the story, which is that the only thing that's that really should have mattered so often gets overlooked, which is that two people were murdered in one of the most brutal fashions imaginable. And this hits home in a several-minute sequence in which a detective describes the, the re, their reconstruction of what exactly happened that night. He walks us moment by moment, stab by stab, through what the wounds and blood spatter evidence tell us, and it is harrowing. Made even worse is it's illustrated with crime scene photos that are not edited, one of which shows what actually happened to Nicole Simpson as 
her head was almost removed from her body. There's so many tragedies in this story, but I think maybe the greatest tragedy of all is what sensationalism did to us, and it made us all lose our minds and stop listening to each other. And for me, it was continuously perplexing why I felt like I couldn't be both horrified of a history of police brutality and be horrified at the verdict. It was like I had to pick one or the other. And I think a lot of Americans on both sides of this felt that way. We took our eye off the ball, which should have been focused on justice for two murder victims, and flooded it with other issues that had no place in that moment in time. All issues that mattered and needed to be dealt with, but that mixing of everything muddied the water so much that not only hindered progress, but seemed to set us all back. And that's the first hour. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it it had to be as long as it was. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed it. I will say quickly that the last part after the acquittal felt rushed and I I wanted more from it because I've never really understood what ended up putting him in jail. But the truly interesting part of, of the mm. story is the history of L.A. and the mm-hmm. the relationship between the black community and the cops and, and O.J.'s coming through all that. So much of it that I, I, I had no idea about. Mm-hmm. And they do an incredible job of weaving all that together. I mean, I wasn't alive during O.J.'s football career, really aware but what an incredible story of him coming out of where he came from but just not being a part of where he came from right because right. isn't a big thesis in it that he was basically like a white guy for this whole time he didn't want to ever be seen as black he didn't want and he didn't want to see himself as black he wanted to just be a person mm-hmm. effectively when a conversation that happens a lot now about people saying they're colorblind or that they don't see color which is stupid <laughs> uh, is, is what OJ was essentially trying to do for himself. And it's sad. Yeah. I mean, I think he's guilty. I think that this puts enough evidence out that there's no question about his guilt, but he's a pretty tragic character. Absolutely. They interview another juror to juror number six, I believe. And juror number six's perspective is interesting because she says, I know the general perception of us is that we're a bunch of idiots who got it wrong. And and that, that was my perception coming in. I think mm-hmm. that was most people's perception. And, and I still feel like they got it wrong, but it does help me understand why they did what they did. Right. I don't I don't sympathize with it. I don't think it was right, but I at least get it a little right, bit right. more. Like it at least at least made those logical connections for me. Oh, that's why you did that. Right. Something that made this hit a little bit more as well was while I was watching this to prepare for this, we were preparing for the romantic episode. And mm-hmm. so in the middle of watching this over the span of three or four days, I watched Natural Born Killers, which is essentially <laughs> about that time of mm-hmm. in the early mm-hmm. 90s when uh, OJ was happening. And there's even a shot of OJ in Natural Born Killers. Oh, yeah. And uh, it was a fun juxtaposition. Yeah. Fun's a weird word for yeah, that. Yeah, it's an odd. It was an interesting... Yeah, I was ready to rip into you because I thought you were choosing a TV documentary, but then I realized it actually premiered at Sundance and had a theatrical release, mm-hmm. which I'm trying to figure out how that worked. Like, or were there it's like a number of LA. intermissions? Like, do you get breaks? Does it over a couple of days? I assume or? there's a few intermissions. I think I think, I think you see it two ways. I mean, one, they show it like all at once, and then they also show it over a couple of nights. Yeah. Mm. I, w- I would say if you're interested in this, don't let the length scare you away because it's, it's very digestible in different sittings. Mm-hmm. And after you watch the first episode, you'll want to keep watching. If you have nine or ten hours to kill, it flies by. Really, it's shorter than binging any season of any show. On <laughs> yeah, Netflix. it's it's very. That's a good way true. to put yeah, it. That's yeah. a great point. Yeah, Metacritic had this uh, their top ten of the year. This has made a lot of top five, top ten lists. Yeah. So it's it's phenomenal. Super super well done. Yep. All right, Joey Joey Jordan. All right, number nice. one. All right. So I've played in bands and toured and all that since I was fourteen years old. I've toured on buses, in vans, and in a caravan of cars because we didn't have a van. It's a world that I think I know pretty well. So when it comes to bands portrayed in the movies, I'm constantly, without fail, disappointed in how far off the mark they are. Enter Jeremy Saul- Saulnier? Saul- Saulnier? Really? I think so. 
Enter Jeremy Saulnier's. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think you knew. No, I've heard, I've heard it. I'm about 68% sure that's. Oh, that's mean. real sure. I'm going to try this again. Saulnier. Enter Jeremy Saulnier's Green Room, the movie that finally got it right. Green Room is about a crusty ish punk band on tour in desperate need for a paying gig that they agree to against their better judgment, a show that will pay them and help them get back home. Problem is, the show is at a skinhead venue, and their politics couldn't be more opposite. They start off the show by really stirring the pot, covering the Dead Kennedy song, Nazi Punks F*** Off, to a room full of neo-Nazis. After the show, they witness an extremely unsavory act and are forced to fight their way out of the skinhead's cover-up. And yeah, it sounds kind of lame, but it's not. The first act had me happy enough with just its accurate and engaging portrayal of a band on tour. But the tension and suspense and anxiety and edge of seat and violence of the rest of the movie was what makes this the absolute best of 2016. My favorite kind of movies are unpredictable edge-of-seat, high-stakes thrillers. And this one delivers that. Plus, a healthy amount of killing neo-Nazis, which is pretty satisfying. (laughs) And we get Patrick Stewart as a neo-Nazi skinhead. How cool is that? The sound design is incredible. The acting is fantastic. Cool! Was that a rhetorical question? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it was rhetorical. No, it's super cool. (laughs) super cool. I'm watching Patrick Stewart in this, and everybody loves Patrick Stewart now. He's awesome. But it felt weird Mm. to see him walking, because (laughs) I haven't seen him walk in so long. As a professor. Right, right. The cinematography is beautiful, and as if all that wasn't enough, one of my biggest pet peeves, as all y'all know, Mm. is when a movie plays some stupid rock or pop song over the end credits to elicit Uh some sort of feeling from the audience as they exit. It drives me completely batty. Well, Green Room does this. Tiffany. I think it played a Tiffany song. (laughs) But in a way that was set up earlier in the movie and works better than in any movie ever made. (laughs) Wow. I'm absolutely in love with this movie. Wait, I, what's the song? Were you not going to mention that? You're just going to. Yeah. I was going to play it later. Oh, um, gotcha. But I can't wait to see where this director goes because this yeah. movie was so well done. Um, we've talked before. I think it was on our documentary episode about how much fun it is to be taken into a subculture. And this is a film that reminds you it can also be absolutely horrifying to be taken into a subculture. <laughs> yeah. And I think what makes this movie work so well is that you know there are really places out there like this. Mm-hmm. And in that regard, I mean, you know, you watch a lot of movies like this that are thrillers or people in terrible situations, movies, and the setups range between absurd and maybe hopefully mildly believable this film drips with authenticity and that's what makes it stick with you so long after it's over it's it's this fear that i could probably drive an hour or two away and in the backwoods of some place find yeah. something like this yeah and, it, and they're all over the country i mean you know i'm, I'm not suggesting 10 percent of our nation is neo-nazis but these no, places it's exist it's 12 12 percent that's my point I, I, I did the math wrong. Um, <laughs> but that that's what makes it work. The setup of this is so believable. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, if I read this story in the news, I'd be like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Yeah. I could see that happen. Yeah. I think something that really helped me with the movie is that I watched so few current movies that I didn't know who any of these people were except for maybe from Arrested Development. Um, or Anton Yelchin. I had no idea who he really? was. I'd never seen him in anything. And so I got to walk into this movie having no idea who would survive because mm-hmm. I didn't... As far as I knew, they were punk kids 
that were cast in their first movie, wow. that was really fun for me. Because yeah. I imagine other people watched it and knew who the stars were, and so they knew what was going to happen. But. It remind it reminded me a lot of a, a movie that we haven't brought up on the show, which is Winter's Bone. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Jennifer Lawrence's kind of breakout movie. And, and it's a movie where you take these subcultures that they're not only subcultures you don't think about a lot, but they're also things that are kind of marginalized and made fun of a mm-hmm. lot. Like people make fun of, fun of mountain people. People make fun of neo-Nazis. Oh, they're so silly and stupid. And you forget how lethal and dangerous they still are even though they're few in number these subcultures are so just brimming with like evil mm-hmm. and it's just not something you think about much because you just don't have to yeah, yeah. Mm. but if you find yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time mm-hmm. it's uh, it's a t- it's a terrifying thought and that's yeah. exactly what happens to the people in this movie yeah i'm dying to see this as soon as i get a chance i did read that patrick stewart said that when he finished reading the script he was at home in his country home in england and he was so terrified that he locked up his house turned on the security system and poured himself a scotch and he said he knew he had to play the role i was in a band somewhere similar to this we toured in a really crappy van a lot like theirs and we played in some very sketchy places and sometimes didn't know how we were going to make it from one show to another Mm and uh, this never before has a movie i think portrayed Hmm. a band correctly and this one well except for same street yeah that was pretty unrealistic well i you know i approached this from somebody with the opposite perspective i know nothing about that life that world and it felt real to me Mm -hmm. so i think that speaks to what a good job the movie did of, of displaying authenticity to people who would understand it or wouldn't. Yeah. My number one film of 2016 is La La Land. Sounds a little funny when you say it out loud. Sounds sure little, does. Sounds a little stupid when you say it out loud. <laughs> Film gives equal time to two characters. Mia, played by Emma Stone, who is a struggling but talented actress just looking for her big break. She's frustrated, but you get the sense that she doesn't simply want to be discovered. She wants to earn what she has. And then Sebastian, on the other hand, is a down-on-his-luck, jazz-obsessed pianist. All he wants is to own his own jazz club called Chicken on a Stick that is a throwback to what makes jazz pure. The movie takes us through each season winter, spring, summer, fall, and finally winter again as these two characters bounce into and off of each other over the years uh, on their perspective journeys. All told through song and dance and some beautifully choreographed and shot numbers. Totally obsessed with this soundtrack. I immediately, when I got in my car leaving the theater, started playing it. And then I really haven't stopped listening to it since. I just love the songs in this movie. It's wow. a lo- you, wow. didn't, you didn't feel that way? Uh, these aren't my kind of songs, but, and so I haven't, I haven't gone out and bought the album. You're not the first person I've heard that's done that. Hmm. It's a love story, but even more so, it's a story about chasing your dreams. It asks a lot of questions about art and creativity and relationships and failure. Can we do it alone? Does art require sacrifice? Does great art only come from pain and struggle? But it doesn't necessarily give you answer to any of these questions. Um, In fact, it gets to the end and you can't tell if it's a happy ending or a cautionary tale, but I love that about it because I'm still thinking about it. I'm still asking those questions even weeks later. I went and saw this last week and the first five minutes... I had to really fight getting up and leaving because <laughs> wow. they were some of the worst first five minutes I've ever seen of a movie. I actually agree with that. I, I had a difficult time, maybe the first 10, 15 minutes of yeah. this Why? as well. What was so bad well, about it? Well, it doesn't start with the characters. It starts with this big musical number. the tone for the movie but it doesn't really set the tone for the story it kind of sets the mood for the movie i feel like it sets the trap for the movie 
it sets this trap of hey come come watch this happy shiny la movie about people falling in love and dancing and singing <laughs> and i didn't really find that very much of the f- movie felt like that after it like that was certainly the sunniest part of the movie it was like obnoxiously sunny oh, though so obnoxious yeah. <laughs> almost like they meant it to be this it was like you were watching dancing with the stars all of a sudden yeah, yeah. and it was it was incredibly shot it's like one shot yeah one long shot in and the it, middle of like la it. traffic it moves yeah. through all these cars it's crazy yeah. yeah and but it just doesn't fit and it it took me it probably took me an hour before i was like you know what i'm i'm enjoying this i have to applaud them because i, I think the way that they tell the story of their relationship and them coming together was done really well. I mean, some of it's got singy dancey stuff in it that doesn't, that doesn't work <laughs> as far as... all of it had singy dancey <laughs> stuff. No, no, there's no. A, there's a long section of the movie where they, all of that kind of drops away. Oh, okay. I mean, they, they use the, the song and dance as storytelling devices. And, and like we said, it starts as sunny as possible and then slowly gets less so. And some of the dance and sing numbers I, I really I really liked because I, I can like that stuff if it's if it's done well. Yeah. And there's there's one in particular where they're dancing on the street up like overlooking L.A. Beautiful. And it's yeah. it's really Super well cool. done. And the, the choreography is inventive and cool. And but the, when the movie gets interesting is when we start to really see them working on their careers and their dreams and and struggling. So I, I went and saw this in the theater. I got home and wrote three pages of notes on it <laughs> because I'm I was just trying to work yeah. out how I felt about right. it and answer some of the questions that were in it. It's called La La Land. How many questions are there in this? Well, movie? That, that's kind of what's so surprising because yeah. I, I'm 45 minutes into it and I'm like, this is like the most vapid, just like LA <laughs> fake thing where they're just gonna like celebrate these different places in LA and that's all I'd heard about it. Yeah, was that oh, they, this this look back to to musicals, but there's a there's a scene that really brought it together for me and made it start started making it really interesting where she's reading her play to him and she finishes reading it and he says it's great and she says are, are you are you sure are people going to like it is it too nostalgic and he goes fuck off and to me that was the filmmaker turning to us the audience and being like do you like this is it too nostalgic <laughs> like what's what's the point here right and and that's when it makes this shift into really asking questions about what do you give up for your dreams and but i think on the whole it's absolutely worth seeing especially if you're an artist or aspiring in that form at all and well, then we and, and then if, we can if talk you just about love it. musicals too i think it's just a lot of fun to watch i i really want to see this movie because i i mean i i do i love musicals and i love I love and hate L.A. I mean, like going to visit L.A. now, but I think this captures a very romanticized version of L.A., and that romanticized version of L.A. I do love. Hudson, I'm going to give you a word of warning here. I feel like Ryan Gosling could become your Pixar. Mm. <laughs> and I'm going to keep an eye how on this. Many, how many Gosling movies <laughs> I, I have I don't I know. It's not, I don't know so much your picks. It's, it's just what I know Gibby of you. the notebook. Well, you picked two tonight. Yeah. And so I'm going to keep an he eye. had a good year. I'm going to keep an eye on this development, but it's yeah. troubling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really want to see this movie. I haven't yet. I... Loved the director Chazelle's last movie, Whiplash, yeah, Whiplash which I think is fantastic. one of my oh, favorite movies yeah, of 2014. Such a great movie. Yeah. And he also he wrote the screenplay for 10 Cloverhood Lane, bringing it back That's to your right. number one yeah, thing. He did. One That's step forward, right. one yeah. step back. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think will he say, rewrote the script. I'm yeah. going to be upset if this wins Best Picture. This is going to win Best and Picture. And by, by upset, I mean, 
I couldn't care less <laughs> yeah. who I wins. Mean, Hollywood loves movies about Hollywood. Yeah, e- exactly. Except not LA Confidence. <laughs> All right, guys. What are you excited about this week? I'm excited about uh, the Academy Awards next week. Oh, that was going to be mine. Oh, <laughs> Gibby and I do a contest every yep. year. Uh, these other guys have zero it's interest so in lame. the Academy Awards whatsoever. But uh, we do a contest. So you can yeah. see you can pick the most winners. Winner gets lunch or dinner. That's right. We buy each other uh, lunch, which I believe I've won every year. I think the you winner, have. The winner, so, the winner gets to pretend they're a man for a week. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah. Zing. Uh, I'm excited <laughs> about catching up with some of these movies from 2016 I haven't seen. Uh, and excited about getting <laughs> All of Gibby's excited about so will either be watching the future movies or the past movies. <laughs> <laughs> the year before, a year behind. I'm excited about Lego Batman, which just came out. It is going to be awesome. Uh, <laughs> it comes out that soon. February 10th. I don't understand Lego movies. Did you Man, see the Lego movies? I, I tell you, though, I mean, those movies have a great sense of humor. Yeah, I mean, I've seen them. I know. Lego, I haven't seen it, but I, Lego movies are very funny. I was in yeah. San Diego a couple months ago and I went to Legoland and like it was hilarious. Like, yeah, everything, oh, you watched the show? They've got the show. Yeah, they've there, got all the sorts movie. of stuff and just like the, huh. they've got a great sense of humor in the Lego yeah, world. Yeah, they're really funny. I'm excited about talking about all the movies that. I saw from 2016 that no one else I know saw, especially a movie called Hunter Gatherer starring Andre Royo, who was Bubbles on the Wire. And this is a fascinating movie that takes place in Compton. It's about a guy who gets out of prison and is trying to put his life back together. But it's it's not at all what you would think a movie about a guy getting out of prison, going back and living at his mom's house in Compton would be like. Hmm. It's a really, really good movie. Kind of an ultra low budget thing? Very low budget. And I think it only played in one theater in Atlanta for one huh. week. And so hmm. I, I saw it in there. But. And it took place in the city. City of Compton. Compton. <laughs> California. Did you guys plan that? Yeah. Keep it rocking. All right. Uh, what is Lance, Lance excited about? Lance, what are you excited I'm about? I'm not today? excited about anything anymore. <laughs> Sorry. You're not excited about the Nothing Super Bowl excites that will have already me. been over? Nothing yeah. excites me. We just won? Nothing. <laughs> I'm dead inside. Hmm. Well, on that note, thanks for listening, you guys. Thanks, guys. We will see you next week. Thank you. Next week, we'll talk about Oscar snubs. Oh, you mean like movies that were nominated for Best Picture and then lost? Yeah, I mean, movies that lost to Forrest Gump, Gladiator, Titanic, and two movies that lost to Hamlet. Wait, what's Hamlet? For thou art not nigh. Bill Nye? <laughs> <laughs> thou art not Bill Nye the science guy. Thou art not the science guy. A two Brutus. Well, this is Keanu Reeves. Let us know how your list differs at, at Fight About Film on Facebook and Twitter or email us at fightaboutfilm at gmail.com. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Four Friends Fight About Film is produced by the Brothers Ray in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was recorded and edited by Jordan Noel. Whoa.